This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Ward School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS Sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Really interesting show, Professor, today. We're going to have, be talking with an economist from the European Central Bank. We've got a lot of European news, uh, very timely. We had another Brexit yeah. vote. We've got a lot of poli- a lot of the European policymakers talking about interest rate policies, negative rates. Uh, it would be great to have somebody on the ground. And, and then in the second half of the show, we're also going to have uh, a friend and somebody joining us in the studio, Jill Fornito of the Global Interdependence Center, uh, who's here to talk about uh, how the events that they put on. And, and Diego's been one of the speakers at the GIC events. Uh, uh, but before we get to Diego and sort of commentary on the ECB, Professor, just maybe give us your lay of the land, how you're looking at the markets and, what, and what's, what's happening. Right. It's uh, a pretty good day today. Uh, well, let's go to the economic data. Uh, uh, it's up and down, uh, actually. Uh, you know, we had weak uh, housing starts, uh, but uh, Thursday um, the uh, jobless claims was not bad. Uh, the the trade data uh, that we got was not bad. So the bottom line is, and this you know this quarter ends uh, uh, this weekend, first quarter, and uh, the uh, people I follow. Uh, are, are all around the low ones for GDP growth uh, in the first quarter. Now, that's, you know, a considerable slowdown. Now, we also got a revision downward for GDP growth in the fourth quarter, uh, down to 3.2%, down 4 tenths. That was pretty much expected. It still gives us 2018 at a uh, 3% rate going fourth quarter to fourth quarter, which is still a very, very nice rate of growth. The question is... From the low ones that we're starting out 2019 on, can we move up uh, to three again? And I think uh, that's being challenged. Of course, the big news in the financial market, uh, and this is big news, is the inversion of the term structure, uh, which means that short-term rates are above long-term rates. And um, there's many ways to measure this, but a favorite way is looking at the three-month Treasury bill and the 10-year bond. Uh, I'm looking at those uh, right now, and the three-month Treasury bill is 239, and the 10-year bond is 241. So it's virtually the same. Uh, earlier this week, we do, did have that 10-year uh, dip below the 90-day bill. Um, it is true that throughout the post-war period, um, except for one episode in the 1960s, Whenever we've had uh, the long bond dip below the short-term bond, uh, a recession has followed within um, anywhere from 4 to 18 months. Um, There's a lot of debate about whether this is a similar type of episode or different, but clearly it is a signal that we have to pay attention to. And let me just uh, say that I know many of you saw me on uh, CNBC a couple days ago where I forcefully argued that the Fed needs to lower rates. Um, uh, I, I, uh, I think the rate hike in December was a mistake. Now, let me say, uh, as I did on, 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 on uh, CNBC, that when the Fed raised in December, the long bond was three and a quarter. 
and they thought they had an awful lot of room there on the term structure. Well, we've had one of the most rapid decline in long-term interest rates since that meeting. Um, it's fallen a good 80 basis points, and as a result, it's not them moving up, but it's the collapse of the long rate. It is my contention, had they known that the long bond was going to be at 240 uh, at the end of March, they would have never raised uh, in uh, December. Maybe they wouldn't even raised in September, but they would have not raised in December. I don't think it's any embarrassment to say, given the circumstances at the next meeting of uh, the FOMC, which I believe, let me just check the date, I think it's in early May, yes, it is May 1st, uh, that they should seriously consider lowering uh, the Fed funds rate. I mean, it's interesting. We, we've had Bullard on in the past, and he's been one of the most uh, you know, dovish in a sense. But I, I also saw him quoted this week thinking maybe they just reduced their normalization in time. Now you're saying they. what's interesting is you've gone now more dovish than Bullard. Yeah. I, I, you know, believe it or not, um, uh, I, I, I am. I mean, I'm a little bit surprised because, you know, Bullard on our program, yeah. and we've interviewed him two or three times, um, has said that uh, he really pays attention to the term structure of interest rates. And um, he said that that's a very major thing. So the fact that it inverted to me, I'm a little bit surprised that he isn't calling for a reduction um, in the rates now. Maybe he will uh, in the near future. Uh, it's also my feeling that... Um, the so-called neutral rate of interest, what we call our star, and obviously we're going to talk about some of these issues with Diego as he comes on uh, shortly, um, is much closer to zero and may even be negative than it is the so-called one-half of one percent or even higher that a number of people at the Fed uh, actually believe. It should be emphasized, by the way, that we, we did get data this morning um, uh, that the year-over-year uh, -year inflation rate, as measured by the core rate of the personal consumption expenditures deflator, which is the Fed's preferred uh, indicator of inflation, uh, fell from 1.9 to 1.8 percent unexpectedly. So they are below that 2 percent a target at the present time. Uh, now, I've seen I've seen some estimates of probabilities that the market's getting closer to your view. That now there's uh, I, I I don't have the chart in front of me, but it's something like a seventy percent probability that they might get a cut this year. Do you think if they do not cut, that you're going to face more market challenges? That the that they're just yes. too tight. I I I I I I do I do think they'll they'll face. Now, the best scenario was we, we see a real pickup in economic activity and we see that long bond go back up to 270, 280 and, and give us a little bit of breathing room over there. But clearly, uh, pessimism in the, in the bond market about where uh, the economy is, is heading is, is, is rife. And once you comment that the year-end Fed funds futures market is now at 215, uh, which is a, a full 25 uh, basis points one cut below the present. Now, we also say, and I've said this many, many times, that's a downward biased one because of the hedging qualities of the Fed Fund's future. So the actual expectation might be a bit above that. Um, but there, if you go down to 2021, I mean, just to mention, the uh, year-end 2020 Fed Fund's rate is now at 180, another uh, decrease in the rate. So um, it's it's uh, clearly, we, we see it in, in the Fed funds uh, futures market. We see it in the long bond market. Um, uh, let, me, let me just say, and I, I hinted at this just a moment ago, um, there are reasons more than just recession for long rates to be low. We've talked extensively on, on our, our show about the hedging qualities of the long-term treasuries that make them excellent to hedge assets and, and drive their demand. Um, this will flatten the term structure as we, we have definitely uh, seen it uh, flatten. Um, but, you know, is that enough to say, oh, I'm not going to be upset about the, the flattening of the curve? That, that's still a big question mark. 
Let me just bring in Diego so we can get him involved in our conversation here. We're talking with Dr. Diego Rodriguez Palenzuela, who's the head of the Business Analysis Division at the European Central Bank. He's been with the ECB now, Diego, it sounds like about 20 years, uh, but you got your PhD from uh, the same university as Professor Siegel, MIT. Right, that's right. Well, yeah, and I, I think uh, Mario also, right? Mario Draghi? Yeah, there's a bunch of uh, also yeah, uh, MIT there's a number plan. of, yeah, of <laughs> Lucas Papademos, <laughs> small <Yeah>. group. <laughs> Any commentary on what you heard, you know, the all this uh, inversion of the curve here in the U.S.? How much do does, does the ECB think about that? And how much do you think is actually of our rate policy, rates in the U.S.? Is it just coming from Europe? Are you emanating the low rates around the world? Um, well, I think, okay, let me first, I have to, I'm, I'm, I'm required to say that I'm talking on my own behalf. As you know, central bankers have this requirement, so uh, I'm very happy to talk on my own behalf. On, on the natural rate, I mean, the, the level of interest rates, uh, was, this R-star term was mentioned before, and that, that's very important. Is On this side of the Atlantic, we talk more about the natural rate of interest rates, sort of the equilibrium rate of, of, um, of interest rates, and that's pretty low. It's low all over the place. It's low, very low in Japan. It's very low uh, on your side, and it's even lower in, in Europe. So that is really the basis of low interest rates. I don't think it's really the weakness in Europe that is somehow the, 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 the overriding factor. Um, so I would put more more into those terms. Um, on, on the inversion of the yield curve, uh, term structure of interest rates, we're not seeing that in Europe. Uh, we are seeing, of course, very low interest rates, which, of course, are a part of policy, a part of the design. Uh, we just had an important decision in March by the European Central Bank in terms of new measures, and, and they're contributing to low interest rates, but, of course, that is, that is the intention. But the term structure is upward sloping. So in that respect, that is not a concern. We are following the situation in the U.S. with, with great detail, with a lot of interest. I, I would say very, very much influenced uh, by, by your decisions and, and, of course, also the exchange rate. But the decisions taken on March are somehow having the, the impact we wanted, in particular in terms of exchange rate uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, it's not a situation of, of high comfort. I mean, growth in Europe is is even lower than, than, than now in the U.S. You have been seeing negative surprises to growth. Also on this side, we are disappointed. Part of it has to do with the external environment, with the lower growth, let's say even in emerging countries, the China situation, the protectionism situation. But all in all, we are still confident on our recovery going on. You know what is interesting, uh, uh, Diego, is that uh, we can still say uh, we have a positive slope in, let's say, uh, Germany with the 10-year at minus seven basis points. <laughs> it's only because the short term are even more negative. That's correct. Uh, I, 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 I certainly, when, I don't know, when you went to MIT, when I went to MIT, we could not dream of this situation happening. Am, am I right? That is, that is correct. I mean, of course, there are upsides to that. I mean, for people, for governments, it's pretty good for financing yeah. really, really cheaply. And it's not only Germany, which has been a safe haven in the past, but also even my own country, Spain, is financing itself in the short term at, at negative rates or very, very favorably. So, I mean, we see also there's also advantages of that. And, of course, it's part of the intention. The ECB rate, some of them are negative. What we call the deposit facility is a negative territory. So it's part of the design, and, and we, we're contributing to stimulus, and that's good. And, and, and let me say, I totally agree with you. I, I go around the country. You know, people say they start blaming the central banks for low rates. It's not the central banks. It's real economic forces, risk aversion, slow growth, demands for liquidity, uh, Hedging. I mean, there's, you know, we can't blame central banks for the low rates. And as you say, there's a great upside to them in terms of financing the governments. But I, I, these are real economic forces uh, that are impinging on the world interest rate structure. Would you would you agree to that? 
I agree with that. I would add to your list the demographic factors, the yeah. aging, the, the savings class yeah. in, the, uh, in the advanced economies. So this is all subsumed this natural rate concept, which is really pretty low. And of course, around that, we try to still stimulate. And of course, that brings monetary policy interest rates of central banks even lower to negative territory. Uh, but that is, we're showing that uh, meeting after meeting, that that is pushing the economy, is contributing to stimulus, is contributing to lending by banks. So I mean, that is, that's where we are. That's where we have to be for the time being. With the negative rates, you would think, uh, you know, and I know at, at all the press conferences, Draghi speaks and he says, we need structural reform. We need, it can't just be the central bank. We, you, know, you would think the governments could try to borrow some more, given that it's in their, they're making their debt more sustainable. Yes, that is that is definitely very important. Uh, I, I mean, it's interesting if you if you read carefully to what Mr. Draghi says. He's very he's very uh, candid or very um, uh, um, how do you say? Uh, uh, I mean, very candid, very very um, right in saying that the governments are. It's not easy for them. I mean, we are in democracies, and of course, it's easier for independent central banks, which are secured. In many aspects, they have a mandate, they have a, an institutional security around them to do, to do their job. For governments, facing elections is more difficult, and it is recognized. So we know it's not easy. At the same time, it's really crucial. I mean, pushing up the natural rate and, and, and somehow potential output is really the work of, of governments, of executive powers. We cannot do almost anything uh, on the side of central banks, except perhaps uh, contributing to the debate in the ECB. We try to, uh, to identify the right policies for that, but at the end, this has to be done by governments. Unfortunately, in Europe, it's even more of an issue than, than in some other advanced economies. We have a serious structural agenda work to be done, especially in some of the euro area countries, which are still needing a lot of, a lot of overhaul in terms of structural reforms. Uh, but we're hoping that this will come over time. We have uh, elections coming soon. I think the politics are uh, reacting gradually to the, to the calls by, by central banks, and there's some hope that this will improve. Let me ask you, uh, you know, you know, Greece, which always, you know, was was uh, a problem country for uh, quite a while, has sort of gotten a lot of its house in order after accepting reforms. But uh, are you worried about Italy? I mean, the the political situation there did drive a a premium on those Italian bonds. Now that it has come down, uh, their debt load relative to GDP is extremely large, and and I believe still growing. Um, how much of a concern do you have about uh, the Italian situation uh, threatening the uh, the euro? Okay, I mean we try to see the euro area in in its uh, in its context. You're very right on what you said about Greece. I think it's quite remarkable. The, uh, I was reading today some of the sorts of indicators, and they're quite uh, uh, the spotlight in, in I mean, that the, let's say the bright side in, in, uh, in Europe, in terms of that they're really coming much more positive. Uh, it's true that other countries, you mentioned Italy, are facing other situation. Uh, of course, the danger is that somehow at some point the sovereign spreads uh, could increase. Uh, we have not seen very much movement on that dimension. Uh, we have not seen any type of contagion. If there's any, any increase in, in sovereigns at some point, there has been, but there was no contagion. So, yes, there is concern. At the same time, well, it's clearly under the spot. I think the, the, the risk is well identified. Uh, there is also a lot of action on the banking side to, to do uh, the right things, to do the right uh, decisions, to have the banks fortified with a new framework. You know, in Europe, we have a new supervisory framework, and that affects all banks, Italian, Greek, Spanish, German banks are under the same framework of, uh, of surveillance, which is strong and which is fortifying the, the financial system. Also, yes, this risk exists, but they are well identified and they're being treated. Uh, so also on the fiscal side, uh, you see compliance in general. I mean, the, the, the commission is, uh, is overriding. It's, it's getting its way in terms of uh, making sure there is fiscal discipline in, in all countries, in, and including also Italy, who has come to terms. Um, how do you respond to so on our, our program? We've had another GIC member and uh, speaker. Maybe you've met her at some of the conferences. 
really go after the negative interest rate policy and saying it's, it's hurting the banks, it's been a failure, that sort of self de- self defeating. Is, is that uh, at all of you? Is there how much of that debate happens at, inside the ECB? I think self defeating is is wrong assessment. I think, of course, it's a difficult situation. There are challenges. Um, and well, that's one of them. It's true that, that in a situation of uh, negative interest rates uh, on the short term of uh, very small nominal, uh, let's say, returns, it's very it's far for banks. It's, it's a challenging situation also uh, at the level of uh, addressing the, you know, the new regulatory environment. But at the same, if you see results, you see, the, for example, the stock market uh, performance, you see uh, returns, I mean, it doesn't seem so negative. So one has to take it with caution. No? And, and, and of course, we know that uh, banks in in Europe are uh, the key of transmission. So of course they have to be part of this of this uh, effort to get accommodation, to get a stimulus, to get monetary t- stimulus in Europe. So I uh, I would say all in all, you have also to take into account the latest decisions taken uh, in March by the governing council, which were uh, in favour of. A number we have approved a number of new operations, uh, large operations, four new operations to be taken uh, over the next uh, of the next years, uh, which also should facilitate. Uh, they have a backstop element. They should facilitate, give security to banks, to, to uh, provisioning for liquidity in secure terms, in predictable terms. So I would say. Uh, these challenges are part uh, are part of the of the of the deal of the business that we are into making Europe uh, let's say sustainable and making the recovery self sustain. Uh, I would not exaggerate these these difficulties for banks. Uh, you, you know the the euro and I, I do we do want to get to Brexit uh, uh, in in just a minute, but the euro just celebrated its twentieth anniversary. Um, Diego, if you would, if you could go back 20 years ago, what what do you think could have been done differently, or or should have been done differently that could could make the currency uh, area more successful? Um, is is there anything looking back? Uh, now clearly the Greece up and down and Greece's entry seemed to have been premature. Uh, although in the early years, even you know Spain and Portugal, your country was was not considered one of the original entrants. Got in, um, had a bad, had a severe adjustment, but both both you and Portugal are doing very well recently. I mean, looking back, what what, what do you what do you see? Okay. Yeah, I mean, these are things we are discussing you know, after 20 years. It's natural. I would say one has to look at the euro as a long-term process, which is very much uh, in the center of the political process of European unity. We should not see it as uh, perfection in terms of uh, was any, any, all of the decisions perfectly correct, was uh, everything optimal. Sure, maybe some things could have been done a little bit differently. Maybe you're right. Some of the decisions at the beginning could have been a little bit different, but all in all, you have to see that the the euro is a harbinger of European unity. Uh, I think for a country like Spain, not having been part of the of the euro from the beginning would have been a, a big a big failure, so to speak, uh, mm-hmm. in terms of its own prestige, its own ability to be uh, in the same in the same bunch of uh, with core countries. Of course, has been more difficult for some of the countries which were still had to do lots of catch up at the level of of uh, let's say what we call real convergence, uh, GDP per capita. But in a way, they got into the right place, so closer to the driver's seat, uh, they they got the challenge, and of course they're still struggling for the challenge. But if you look long term, uh, it's much better to be part of it than being out, uh, for, you know, for any of the let's say periphery countries, and, and struggling with uh, um, with convergence, what, what having still to face the weak currency, higher inflation, uh, yeah. and, and a number of, and, and fiscal I, sustainability I would have been much worse. I, I yeah, agree sorry. with you. I think it's a good thing for for a very good thing for Spain. What could have prevented that tremendous up and down that Spain suffered? Of course, Greece suffered it even many times more, but how how could it have been done not to add that boom and then that yeah. terrible bust? 
I think uh, yeah, we have seeing. the answer. I mean, I, we have recollections done? at the time when the bubble that uh, somehow in the run-up to the 2008 and 2011 episodes, all you know, the crisis episodes, yeah. we had a big bubble, real estate bubble, credit-driven bubble in, uh, in not only in Spain, but in, in most of the periphery countries. Uh, so that could have been remedied. I, how, I, this how was identified in real time. Central banks were pointing to those risks. We're saying, well, there's a build-up, excessive build-up of risk of, uh, of credit. Um, there's overpricing in real estate in particular. There was a figure of 30% overpricing in real estate that was, I remember, maybe, maybe mm-hmm. at the end was higher, but in real time we identified at least 30%. Fiscal policy could have done more at the time. It's true that fiscal policy, there was austerity at the time in the sense that, that uh, many countries were having surpluses and they were producing their, their debt-to-GDP ratios, but still they were not curtailing the, 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 uh, the real estate bubble. And that maybe that's something that should have been different. The new environment and the new context, institutional context, is is dealing with that, is addressing that. Well, we have a very much more developed now, much, much more developed now macro prudential framework where we have a specific instruments at country level to try to address disequilibria when they, when they emerge. Yeah. Let me just quickly reintroduce our guests. We're talking with Diego uh, Rodriguez of the European Central Bank, an economist there who oversees the business uh, analysis division. And, and you know, we, there's a lot of different issues here as, uh, as, what's, as all these different uh, complex situations. When you think about the current situation with Brexit, which is obviously very much front and center in the news today, how do you think does – how, how does the ECB – factor that into any of their, or you think they should factor into their decision-making? I mean, we have two hearts, no? In a, in a way, there's a technical aspect of it, which we have to somehow deal with, which is uh, assessing the risk around, seeing the impact on the baseline, how it is affect our growth uh, developments, how it affects inflation, exchange rate, and so on and so forth. And there we have a number of scenarios, and, and we have, of course, in the baseline, computed different different situations. Uh, I mean, I think for the, for this let me put it this way, for the Eurozone and for the ECB, it's a risk, an important, significant risk, but it's not even the major risk in terms of, let's say, the macro uh, challenges for the macro outlook. We have the situation of the global economy, we have protectionism, and there are a number of, unfortunately, a situation of a clustering of risk. Now, the other hard it has to do more with, of course, the negative aspects and the institutional crisis around Brexit and the uncertainty that is creating, which, of course, is, is very much uh, regretted. But at the same time, at the technical level, is not driving decisions. No, I think decisions are driven by, let's say, the baseline, and it's an element of the baseline, but it's not even the major element. Diego, you know, you said earlier that the Euro project was a un- political or part of a unification of Europe project, but when, when you look at the political trends in, in, in Europe, um, has it really brought Europe closer together or, or not? Uh, it, 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 it seems a good argument could be made that it has, has not. Um, how would you address that? I mean, it's a fair question. Of course, the counterfactual is how would it have been without the euro? But you have the UK case, no? The UK is not in the euro, and the, here it goes, out of the European Union, no? So maybe it gives you a bit of a, of a benchmark. What would have happened? What happens to the countries which are not even part of the eurozone? And you see the, 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 the forces to go away seem, seem quite high. It's not only the UK situation. It's also on the other side of the continent. and the east, you see also countries which are somehow not, uh, not very attached in some respects to the, to the project. And are not uh, part of the euro like Hungary and Poland. Um, uh, maybe exactly. So, uh, on the contrast, on the contrary, you see the, the situation of Greece, where the challenge was enormous, but nonetheless, uh, the country is still there. You, you mentioned yourself, no, this overhaul that has taken place, this much better situation. So, there's no doubt that is a is a very important bone among the countries, and it's not a bone which is which is a chain. I mean, it's a positive bone. It's a bone that that uh, uh, at the end of the day brings economic proximity and brings also financial security for a country, let's say even for Greece, but, all, but for many other countries, being part of the Eurozone means protection, means that, that your currency is strong. So I would say, in spite of all what we have seen and, and all the challenges you have mentioned, the balance remains, I would say, very positive. What, what do you think are the major reasons, or, or what, and what kind of reforms uh, and, and uh, 
policies would you recommend to try to speed up uh, growth in the eurozone? What are what are you, your list of most important measures that can be taken? Yeah, probably has to do with uh, markets. Uh, let's say free competition reigning uh, to a higher extent. We have, unfortunately, the internal market has progressed a lot, but we don't have still, uh, unlike the U.S., where you have no doubt a very unified, very competitive internal market, we have still fragmentation in Europe, and unfortunately, the crisis uh, eroded some of the integrity of the, 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 the let's say, the, the unity of the market. So we need to restore the, this, this integrity of the market, the unity of the internal market. We need also to get more financial uh, market uh, integration. So there's a, there's a Project on what we call Capital Markets Union, uh, which, should, which is directed in, uh, precisely for that. So it's really creating scale, creating uh, a home for entrepreneurship, for bigger scale companies. So we have a problem in Europe, for example, that the, the, the size of companies is too small. The economies of scale are not realized. We see also a big up with digitalization. Uh, for example, what's going on in your country, what's going on in Asia. We are, we are not only behind, but also somehow the distance is sometimes increasing, and that's, of course, a concern. So that is very high in the agenda, getting getting the entrepreneurial side right, getting the te- technological side correct. Uh, there's really much, much to be done. So, so Diego, uh, coming to, I mean, you mentioned earlier on sort of the, the four different things that you, you guys had announced at your latest, uh, latest meeting, uh, and there's been a few different measures to try to help you know we talked about the banks and the negative rates um one of this sort of the, the refinancing operations the tltro is one of these or there's a third round of that uh and then there's also discussion uh maybe not a, a new policy but something about tiered deposits and how do you sort of treat different tiers of deposits differently any just sort of commentary on what you think is the most impactful of the different measures that you you talked anything you want to highlight there yeah, okay. Um, I mean, as I said, my role is more on the macro side, so I can give you my, my take, but, uh, but I'm not uh, somehow at the front of these discussions. It's difficult to distinguish the different aspects because they were announced, let's say, in the, I don't remember exactly, but in one or two hours range of time. So it's not easy to sort out the impact of the different measures. Uh, among the monetary policy part, there is really four elements, no? and some of them are confirmed. Like, for example, the full rate, full allotment is, is a confirmation. Uh, probably the main, the main impact has to do with the four large operations. So the, the, the genuine, let's say, the, the strictly speaking about the, uh, the, 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 what they call the, tank, the TLTRO uh, in version three. So that's probably the higher impact. It's also to be said that there's a lot of optionality around that. So it's not that everything was decided at once, but many things are indexed to future rates, to future decisions to be made. So it's a very data-driven process, depending on how the macro side, the, the, the nominal developments evolve over the next months, they will be somehow decisions will be calibrated and, and, and finally confirmed in terms of, for example, the precise, let's say, definition and specification of these operations. So I would say it's the package that is, that is really uh, fundamental and also the, the commitment shown by the Governing Council in terms of making sure that the, the transmission mechanism is all right, that the, that the banks will continue to function in a, in a favorable environment. And also there's a stance element. No, it's not only, it's not only the, the, let's say, the backstop element. There's also stance element in terms of the impact on the yield curve, the impact of, on, the, on the rates, what we call the forward guidance. So the and that is calendar-based element to that, by which there was a specific date until which rates will be maintained, uh, let's say, under commitment that was mentioned until the end of the year. And then there's a data-driven element in the full guidance that depending on the developments, more will be done uh, on a timely fashion. So if you ask me about the, the, the implication of the different aspects, it's very difficult to sort out, but I think the package has been very effective. You also ask about this tier. I mean, I, I, that's... that's to, to, as far as I know, this under discussion. So there's no decision has been made on this tier reserve system. My understanding is it's linked to making, giving the right incentives for, uh, for the banks to still participate in money markets, uh, depending on their own intake and the operations. But, but I don't, I don't have the details of that. I know we're coming up on on the bottom part of our show here. As as you think about your research agenda, things that you're really focused on to try to help the policymakers make better decisions. Any what's what are you most excited about on on your research agenda? Okay, we're looking at many dimensions. One of them is 
we have seen the world is uh, the world economy is changing in many in many aspects. One, for example, is uh, inequality. We see more inequality. We see uh, technology driven sometimes. The, 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 the skill premium has increased, whereas the bottom end of the distribution is is, is having less and less income. So that affects at the end transmission mechanism. It affects also macro stability. So that's one aspect we're trying to understand how the interplay between monetary policy and this sort of different uh, tendencies as regards uh, income income distribution. I also mentioned before digitalization. That's uh, also a very important uh, agenda we're trying to look into, uh, not only in terms of giving, identifying the right advice for the policymakers in the commission and in the countries, but also for our own purposes to understand better what does it mean in terms of uh, real activity, the role of intangible investments, uh, the role of, of monetary policy at, uh, at stimulating the economy in a context where, let's say, collateral maybe it's becoming less important because human capital and technology are uh, more and more important. So I think those are two good examples of, of things we're keeping us quite busy here. Professor, any closing thoughts from, from you? Uh, or, uh, are you? Are you speaking to me? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, I'm encouraged by, by what you say. I mean, I, I'm supportive of Draghi's measures. I was supportive of Bernanke's quantitative easing. As you know, there was a lot of criticism in the U.S., even among academics. I think uh, it was the right thing to do. It, it doesn't cure everything. I'm supportive of what Draghi is doing. I think the ECB is is, is doing a good job. Um, uh, you know, and, and I like what you said about, you know, more entrepreneurial, better markets, more labor flexibility. We all know that in the long run, these supply-side factors are, are, are very dominant in terms of uh, driving productivity and growth and, 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 and closing that uh, inequality gap that you just spoke of. Thanks a lot. Diego, thank you so much for joining us uh, late on a, a Friday evening there for you. My pleasure. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much for the talk. We've been talking with Diego Rodriguez of the European Central Bank. Thank you, Professor Siegel, for staying with us. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We'll be back after a short break, talk, recap our conversation, and bring in another guest. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 132. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Joining me for a few minutes here to just recap our first conversation will be Kevin Flanagan. He's the head of fixed income strategy at Wisdom Tree Asset Management, also just representative of Foresight Fund Services. Kev, so what an interesting first segment of the show. We had Professor Siegel calling for the Fed to cut rates at the next meeting. We had the ECB conversation. How are, what are, what's your first impression from what you just heard? What a good conversation. It's an exciting Friday for an old Fed watcher like myself, let me tell you. A lot of central bank talk on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the points that the professor was making with respect to the changing perception of what the Fed uh, will probably not do this year in terms of raising rates earlier and now how the markets are actually pricing in a rate cut and Fed funds futures are pricing in two rate cuts for next year. But we got a long way to go yet, and that would be the one thing that you know, for your listeners, that I would, I would, I think, throw out a little bit of caution. We're just coming out of the first quarter, and if you do look at some of the other measures out there, one of the key concerns from the Fed was financial conditions, and you now have the rebound in the stock market. Credit spreads have rebounded two thirds to three quarters of the widening that we saw in the fourth quarter, and I think more importantly is we're all focused on, you know, the Fed and. Fed-administered interest rates, like the Fed funds target. But if you actually look at the makeup of the Treasury yield curve, I think you can make a very valid assessment or even a conclusion that the market has already cut rates for the Fed. It's almost as if the Fed cut rates but didn't tell anybody about it. If you just look at pricing mechanisms for the two-year, the five-year, even the 10-year, you would seemingly think we're not priced for a two-and-a-quarter to two-and-a-half percent target range for Fed funds, but more like two to two and a quarter. So it will be interesting to see as this dynamic plays out throughout the rest of the year. And then looking at it from the ECB perspective, the different path. I think the path for the U.S. economy is a little less certain. I think we're all in agreement it's going to slow. The question is the magnitude of the slowdown that we're going to see. I think when you go on to the other side of the Atlantic, the certainty is that 
there is no doubt that economy is slowing. It's just more or less a question of keeping it out of a recession. So um, some different aspects, I think, to policy and what the ECB can do, because unfortunately for them, they were not in a position like the Fed was to essentially raise rates from zero to two and a half. So they have no cushion on the rate front if you were to see, you know, any kind of moves where they felt they had to be more accommodative. And that's why I thought it was interesting when you brought up the tiered deposit uh, question, because that hit a lot of headlines this week in Bondland. Would that be something that the ECB would consider, the TLTRO program as well? And what, if anything, would they consider their own operation twist for their balance sheet? Now, given all these dynamics, I mean, it's sort of amazing, you know, the Siegel was worried about the inverted curve. Um, you had been thinking, maybe we get a hike. Is there any, is he convinced? Convincing you off the hike, or is uh, you still think that you're cautioning the listeners that it's still too early in the year? Yeah, well, the professor's a heck of a lot smarter than I am, so I certainly respect uh, his opinion and, and, and where we're going from this. And it does seem as if that is the pointing of the direction that the last, uh, you know, path of least resistance would be to move in that direction. The one yeah. thing that I would focus on uh, at this stage of the game, though, is you know if you look at say the three-month tenure, um, the the curve. It barely, barely went negative. If you look at the prior two instances, you were talking about in 07, negative 40 basis points. In the 2000 period, you were looking at it being nearly 80 basis points in reversion. And if I'm not mistaken, I remember you had um, President Mester on a, a number of shows ago, a month or so ago, and you were asking her questions about the yield curve. And, and I think one of the premises that she had was, sure, they respect it. They, they look at it as perhaps guidance as to where we're going. But, you know, given quantitative ease, given the term premium or the lack thereof, that perhaps you need a bigger inversion to have the same kind of impact that it's had in the past. So for me, when I see a three-month tenure at only negative one or two basis points, I see two tens still positive. And I think one of your favorites, right, the five-year, 30-year, uh, is actually steepened as well. The signs don't all point in that same direction. So I, I, I would still throw out caution that the more likely scenario would seem to be no rate hike this year. There's certainly no rate cut on the horizon, in my opinion. But there could be that outside shot, that outside shot that maybe the Fed does go in December. Remember, their own forecasts were that they would go in 2020. So, you know, if they just move that up by a couple of months, there you have your rate hike in 2019. Very good. And just sort of final 30 seconds, taking all that in, your, your, your basic strategy type of recommendation for fixed income portfolios? I, I think two things. Let's upgrade credit quality. That's one. Real quickly, I, I think the Treasury floating rate strategies as a core short government allocation makes a lot of sense, especially in this flat to inverted yield curve environment that we're in. And second, on the credit quality side, I think we need to look under the hood. So take this opportunity that the narrowing in credit spreads have given you. And if you weren't able to increase credit quality in the fourth quarter, look to do it now. Very good. Thank you so much for joining us for some quick reactions. Thank you, Jack. Okay. Um, we are going to turn to our next guest in the studio with us, Jillian Fornito, Executive Director of the Global Interdependent Center, nonprofit established in 1976, headquartered today inside the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. Uh, but you used to be here on Penn's campus. Welcome back to campus, Jill. Thank you, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for helping get us connected with Diego. It's he's been one of the speakers at your events. I've been in, I've been attending your events for a number of years, probably from seeing Kotak, uh, our good friend David Kotak, sent out a lot of emails. He's been a great connector for all of us, and uh, he's very in the central banking circuit. And um, you guys host a lot of great events. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get to the GIC? I have actually been with the Global Interdependence Center for over 10 years. Yeah. I started out in the um, corporate sector at Towers Perrin. I did some work in the human resources human resources administration field, and then uh, segued into the nonprofit sector, uh, working for an organization in the city called Greater Philadelphia Cares. And uh, so from there, I uh, found my way into the Global Interdependence Center. Um, I started out as um, program management, did some marketing membership, and then grew from there. And so give us the mission. What is uh, the GIC, Global Interdependence Center, trying to, trying to do? Um, we are trying to provide an 
forum for divergent perspectives. And so we do that through our conferences um, in the United States, around the world, on issues that affect the global economy. And so we are a neutral, nonpartisan, uh, nonprofit organization. And so we have conferences to try and bring folks together of different perspectives to see if we can um, create a global dialogue. And so you just came back. You talk about being global. You just came back from Cuba. Yes, we had our first conference in Cuba in January, and we were um, very fortunate to bring a group of 20 members to Havana to meet with members of the Central Bank as well as uh, Ministry of Foreign Relations and Foreign Investment. And so we uh, had a really successful program and uh, looking forward to continuing that later this year, hopefully. Yeah, you've got a lot of events coming up over the next few months. Um, you got one next week. You've got one in the middle of April. Maybe sort of give, give our listeners a little bit what is on the agenda for the Global Interdependence Center. Sure. Um, the Global Interdependence Center, we, uh, we do a lot with, uh, with a small staff, and so we have about 17 conferences every year, which is terrific. And so this year, we started off in Cuba, and we have an upcoming conference in Salt Lake City, where we'll be partnering with the Columbus Community Center, and we work with Columbus on a conference every year on how uh, individuals with disabilities impact the economy. And so we'll be heading there next week, and then we'll be back in Sarasota for a conference with our partners at the University of South Florida, Sarasota Manatee as well as with Cumberland Advisors to have our Financial Literacy Day. And so that will be in mid-April. And then at the end of April, we have a members delegation and meeting with uh, the former governor of the Banque de France, uh, Governor Noyer, will be joining us for lunch in Paris. Mm. And so um, we'll have a members group join us that, at that point. And then um, we'll continue back into Philadelphia in May for our annual Monetary and Trade Conference. And we work with the Lebeau College of Business for that here in Philadelphia. And that will be our 37th event uh, with Laveau. And so they have been a terrific partner for GIC. And then uh, we'll continue this year with the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago in June. And then we'll have one of our hallmark events, which will take place in July, uh, out in the Jackson Hole area, which is our Rocky Mountain Economic Summit. And uh, that's one of our, our major events for the year. I think that was probably one of the first events I attended just as a casual observer on David's email list, seeing all the events that he goes to. And you're going out to the event, and you're sitting on the bus, sitting next to Jim Bullard of the St. Louis <laughs> Fed, and you just strike up a conversation. So what do you think about what's going on? It's, it's really an amazing set of, of people you get to come to these events. And also, one for, for members, it's a very reasonable price to, to attend, from from what I see. It is. Um, we, we are a membership organization, and so we offer our members a discounted rate to join our conferences. And so, um, like you mentioned, the opportunity to interact with some really influential members of um, those working in the global economic landscape. And so I think that's what really is um, really adds value for our members is the opportunity to interact with those people, uh, not only during the conference and, and taking away from the content and the agenda, but also, you know, we have our welcome dinners the night before or lunches during um, where we really try and have our members leverage um, these opportunities where they can interact with these people. And on uh, any of the those big upcoming ones, so the Jackson Hole Conference, anything sort of key speakers you want to want to highlight for that one? That's that's the one of the big ones. That is one of our big ones. Uh, this is our eleventh Rocky Mountain Economic Summit, and we are excited to feature Tom Barkin as the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Uh, we'll be keynoting, and we'll also be welcoming Paul McCulley as our afternoon keynote. Um, formerly with PIMCO and now with Cornell Law. And so we're excited to have them join us in July. Um, later this year, we're actually going to be returning to Frankfurt to the Bundesbank. And we're excited to go back. Last year was our first program with the Bundesbank. And so we'll be back there at the end of September. And we're welcoming uh, Charles Evans, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. And so he's actually going to stick with us uh, later that week. We'll be in Madrid. And hopefully we'll have Diego back with us again and to join us in Madrid well, we'll be working with the uh, Fundacion Rafael Del Pino, as well as BBVA will uh, be supporting us there. So we have a lot of programs already planned for the rest of the year. We're already working on events for 2020. Wow. <laughs> Just a quick reintroduction. We're talking with Joe Fornito, who is the Executive Director at the Global Interdependence Center. They put on a lot of these central banking slash economic, uh, all sorts of events, bringing policymakers and economists, interested parties to learn uh, around the world. Um, what so the um, when you think about who else attends these types of events? I mean, who when who are you seeing the type of, of people attending? 
So we have a pretty diverse group of members and attendees. Um, we have people in the financial sector, um, wealth management, public-private banking. Um, we have students. We have members of academia, small business owners, entrepreneurs, uh, venture capitalists. We have all kinds of uh, individuals that are drawn to our programs. Um, we try and cover everything from what's going on uh, with regard to a global economic outlook. Uh, we have topics on monetary policy. We just did a program on climate change, which was um, a real successful event we had down in Florida. And so um, we try and go a little bit outside of just what's happening in monetary policy and to see, you know, what else can really impact globally. Yeah. A lot in that sort of European, I, I, last one of the events I attended with you last year, we got to stay at the Bundesbank. You're sort of staying on top of like a, a, on campus in a small little room, little <laughs> kind of interesting setting there. I mean, you guys do a lot of these great events. Thank you. Yes, we we have um, we have a really impressive calendar, and so I would uh, welcome um, new members to join us and to take a look at our programming, which um, is everything is listed on our website. And we send out a, a weekly newsletter. We're active on Twitter, and uh, try and get some promotion that way. Yeah, I mean, I well, I came across it, attended a few of them, the Jackson Hole being, I think, the first one. But then, you know, I've been following David and and became a global sponsor. And I, as my own uh, endorsement of the Global Interdependence Mission, I mean, I think it's a great organization. It's a very reasonable, for personally speaking, as a global sponsor. I think there should be more global sponsors. So you should find Jill and see if there's uh, a way to get involved. But I think it, it's been very productive. You get to interact with a great group of people. Um, what um, when you guys talk about dialogue, uh, sort of, what, what, why is this open dialogue across people so important? Well, I think that's what really sets us apart as uh, an organization that is really um, focused on staying neutral. And so we, if there's a very um, interesting or dynamic topic, we bring both sides to the table to discuss whatever that might be. And so we remain a nonpartisan neutral orga organizer. And so I think that's what uh, makes us different and is super important in, in today's climate to sort of maintain um, this position in that we are bringing people together to have the discussion. And so I think that's yeah. extremely important. The um, you mentioned after coming back from Cuba, you, you have a, a travel blog. I guess all this travel <laughs> around the world, you gotta do something. What have, what are some of your your recent blog posts? My most recent blog post is on uh, the Paladars in Havana, and so my blog is really geared toward the travel and tourism and also food components of our conferences. So, um, you know, while we have our delegates joining us for the program content and the conference. Um, component, I focus on what are the fun things you can do outside of the conference. And so um, in Frankfurt, I coordinated a little um, food tour. Uh, we stopped over at one of the um, farmer's markets and and took a tour of the farmer's market. Um, I've done food tours for the group in Madrid. And so um, I focus the blogs on food and travel and tourism in conjunction with the conferences. And so um, I've done a blog on Dublin. Uh, I've done two on Jackson Hole because it's probably one of my favorite destinations because there's just so much to do there um, outside of the programming. And also I've done a blog on Sarasota, uh, New York, and I did one blog, sort of an overview on all of GIC's international programming, which was during our 40th anniversary in 2016. And you're, you're sort of, if the people are going to pick one conference to come coming up, is it Jackson Hole or are you going to give them another one that they have to come to? I would say that Jackson Hole is, um, I mean, I can't pick a favorite, but it, it's certainly one of my favorite favorites. children of your 17 children. <laughs> of my 17. Um, Jackson Hole, I would say, or, or certainly, um, Sarasota. We have a lot of great programming in Sarasota and also um, Madrid and Frankfurt. And so, Jill, where can we find out more about the Global Interdependence Center? All of our information is on our website, which is interdependence.org. Jill Frenito, thank you so much for coming into the studio today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. 
can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.